we would focus all of our attention on you, that we would hear your voice through your word, that you would speak to us by the Holy Spirit. We acknowledge before you that we are unworthy vessels of your grace. And for that reason, we praise you continually. We thank you for all you have done for us, for the change that you have made in our lives. You have, you have given us a new name and new life to go with it. Father, even this very moment, this morning, we pray that you will be with our brother Dave Shaw down in Santa Rain, Brazil. Pray that you will be with him and the folks at New Jerusalem Baptist Church there as he preaches this morning. We ask that you would give him power as he ministers to the folks there. We pray for Pastor Donizetti and Nisi, his wife, and their family, and Pastor Adriano and Agilini and their children. We ask that you continue your work there as you are doing so here. Father, we pray that you would be glorified here in our midst today. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you, folks. You can have a seat. <clears throat> Through the marvel of modern technology, I was able to video chat with Dave and Pastor Donizetti yesterday afternoon, and they send their greetings here to Mossbrook Church. Even though you have never met uh, Pastor Donizetti, he has been praying for you for about 20 years, and uh, as we have been praying for them, and they send their greetings and ask to be remembered to you folks this morning. So pray for Dave. Uh, the last couple of days, they were out on the river earlier this week, and he began to feel quite ill. And of course, everybody thought COVID, uh, and so they rushed back to the city. Uh, he didn't have COVID, but he did have a serious infection uh, stemming from a cut that he had on his leg. And so the doctors have given him some antibiotics. He was feeling quite a bit better yesterday afternoon, but I told him we'd be praying for him this morning while he preaches at the church there in Santa Rain. So please remember them. Uh, throughout the morning and throughout the day, Dave will be heading back to us on Tuesday and getting here on Wednesday. Well, we're back in the book of Genesis this morning for the, I've kind of lost track, I think eighth or ninth week uh, that we've been here. And we've been talking about Jacob the last couple of weeks. And this morning I want to talk to you a little bit about Jacob's name. Jacob's name means, as you know, supplanter. It means deceiver. It means schemer. His, his father gave him that name because when his older twin brother Esau came out of the womb, Jacob was right behind him with his hand on his heel, trying to get ahead. And that's how Jacob had lived his life. You know, names are kind of an interesting phenomenon. Here in our culture, we have first and last names. Not everyone does that, but we do, first and last names. And, and most of us have middle names. My last name is Booker, and that's my family. That's my family name. Uh, I did a little digging a few years ago. How many people have ever gotten on Ancestry.com? That's a wormhole if you've got like two months to lose uh, to go down into. I traced back because I wanted to know where my family had come from. I know where my 
parents have been and my grandparents, but I didn't really know anything after that. And I thought they might have traveled to some exotic places or from exotic places to get here. And Melody kind of laughed when I told her I dug back in my family tree and six generations of my family have lived within 10 miles of Bangor, Maine. <laughs> We're not very exciting. And still, my dad it grits his teeth to go more than 10 miles from home. And it was a miracle that they came down to visit us uh, last weekend. We just don't go too far, I guess. I went back even further and found that in the late 1600s, James Booker came from England and settled in Massachusetts. And I guess gradually somebody struck out as a pioneer and came up to Maine uh, at some point in the ensuing decade. Decades. Uh, my middle name is Robert. That's after my father, in honor of my father, and a link to him. And of course, my first name is Michael. That's unique to me. So I'm Michael Robert Booker, and that's how you know who I am. My name tells a little bit of my story. Uh, we gave Gavin his name because it is a link to Melody's Irish slash Scottish slash Welsh heritage. Um, her family wasn't very adventurous either. For centuries, they've been in Ireland and Scotland until they came over here to Canada. Gavin's middle name is Robert, to share with me, and also because both of his grandfathers are named Robert. We all carry ID cards in our wallets and, and in our purses, uh, driver's licenses, passports, social security cards, so that we can prove who we are. Our names are our identities. And in the Old Testament, a lot of the names had meaning attached to them. Adam means man. Adam was the first man created. The name Abraham means father of many nations. That was God's promise to him, wasn't it? We remember, God said, I'll make your family great. And they'll number as the grains of sand on the seashore and the, the stars in the sky. And then we come to poor old Jacob in the last two weeks, living out his name almost his whole life, manipulating, deceiving, scheming, trying to get ahead. We saw that he he's almost stole his older brother's inheritance for a bowl of soup. And then we saw he and his mother conspire to deceive Isaac, Jacob's father, and steal Esau's blessing. Jacob schemed his way through life until God forced him to confront his own sinfulness and his own heart. And you see last week when we talked about Jacob wrestling with God, that God finally brought Jacob to his knees. And if you remember anything that we talked about last week, you'll know that when God brought him to his knees, as they wrestled and got to the break of dawn, God looked at Jacob and he said, what is your name? Do you remember that? What is your name? And he said, I'm Jacob. In other words, he was saying, I'm a deceiver. I'm a manipulator. I'm someone who does everything that I can to get ahead by my own strength. And God said to him, no longer will you be Jacob. Now I'm going to call you Israel, a new name. And with it, he received a new identity. What we're going to see this morning, though, is that Jacob needed to make some changes in his life 
so that it would match up with this new identity. And much the same, God has given us a new name. We are now called Christian. We are Christ follower. And a new identity that is given to us with that name is as children of God. But the question that we want to ask ourselves this morning as we see what happens in this final section as we look at Jacob's life is what are we doing with this new name? What are we doing with this new identity that God has given to us? Are there changes that need to be made? God has given us a new name and a new identity. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis 35. We're going to catch up with Jacob one more time. Now, we're going to continue from here. We're going to pick up after this, and we're going to do, we're going to talk about Joseph who was one of Jacob's sons for a few weeks. And we'll see that Jacob pops back up. But this is really the last chapter of Genesis that zeroes in on Jacob. So we catch up with him one more time. And just to remind you, it's been about two decades since he stole Esau's blessing. He had to flee in fear of his life. He went to his uncle. If you remember, some of you have said that you've been reading along through Genesis. Obviously, we're not hitting everything. It's 50 chapters, so there's a lot of gaps that we have to fill in. He fears for his life. He flees to his uncle. He gets married. Then he gets married again. He has 11 sons. He gets rich. He wrestles with God, he gets a new name, he reconciles with his brother, and now here we are at Genesis 35. And in verse 1, God says to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So God appears to Jacob again and says, I want you to go to Bethel, not Bethel, Maine, Bethel in the Middle East. But that's what it was named after. I bet many people that live in the town of Bethel here in Maine don't understand what that name means. It means house of God. Maybe if they knew what it meant, they'd want to change the name. But that's what Bethel means. So he says, I want you to go to Bethel, and I want you to worship. Now in a minute, we're going to see why it was significant. He told him to go to Bethel. There was a reason he wanted him to go to that spot. Verse 2. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. So what I want you to notice here is that Jacob had surrendered to God. Remember they wrestled and Jacob realized that he could not win and he asked for God's blessing and he surrenders to him. But I want you to notice here that there were some things in his life that still needed to be cleaned up. There was a sanctification process that had to happen in Jacob's life. Sanctification is the process by which God makes us holy. Now let me ask you this question. Are we holy naturally? Do we seek to do the right things? Do we always want to be selfless? Do we always want to care about others first? Do we always want to put away the things that are evil and wrong? No, of course we don't. 
But when God gives us new life, he starts this process of making us holy, of sanctifying us. And that's what needed to happen here in Jacob's life. And notice not only his life, but it says his whole household, his wives, his children. Probably at this point he had grandchildren, his servants. And he said he challenged them to put away their foreign gods, literally idols that they worshipped. Probably what was happening is that even though Jacob knew God and his family knew God because Jacob knew God, that they were worshiping some of these other idols, these other deities, in addition to God. They were probably still worshiping God, but they were worshiping other things at the same time. And Jacob says you need to put them away. Literally, you need to remove them. We need to get them out of here. And that sounds like us, doesn't it? Maybe there's not too many of us that would say, oh, I worship this other thing. This is more important than God, whatever it is in your life that is of great importance to you. We wouldn't claim that that takes the place of God. And yet what we tend to do in our lives is is bring these other things along. And while we worship God, we worship these other things as well. We bring other things into that mix with our time and our effort and our energy. And we put great importance on them. Jacob's family needed to remove these foreign gods. What do you need to remove? Is there something in your life that well, you may say, well, that, that's not taking the place of God in my life, but it's there along with God. It's there. It consumes your attention. It consumes your energy. It is one of your passions. Perhaps some of us could stand to put our computers in the dumpster or our phones or our television. Why does Jacob challenge his family this way? Why does he command them to remove these things from their camp? Because he says we need to purify ourselves so that we can go and worship. The word purify there literally means to clean up. And Jacob knew that if he was going to follow God's command, if he was going to go to Bethel, and he was going to build an altar, and he was going to worship this God who had given him this new name, he knew they had to be clean first. They had to be pure. I think a lot of times when we come to gather like this to worship when we come to church or we sit down to worship God on our own. We think, well, I'll worship and that'll clean me up. I've talked to a lot of people over the years who think that's what happens when you come to church. It's like one of those drive through car washes. You just put your car in neutral and it just pulls you right through and cleans it up and spits you out the other side. And sometimes that's how we look at church. Oh, I got to go to church so I can get cleaned up. Man, this was a bad week. I got to get there and clean myself up. Jacob said to his household, you need to put this stuff in the trash and you need to purify yourself and then you need to go and worship. With what heart attitude do we come here? Now certainly we come to to be encouraged. We come to be challenged when we need it strengthened, taught. But I think it's honoring to God when our hearts are pure when we come here. 
just as Jacob was challenging his family. Then we can go to the house of God. Then we can go to Bethel. Then we can truly worship. So they did it. They trashed everything. They got everything, and they brought it to Jacob. It says they took the rings out of their ears. Ladies, I don't think that means that it's wrong to wear earrings. I think probably what was happening was that they had some of these earrings perhaps that were connected to the worship of some of these idols that they had. Perhaps there were images of these idols or something connected to that. And so they brought all of this and Jacob buried it. He put it to death. Verse 5. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell on the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. They had to go through enemy territory, but because they had yielded themselves to God, because he had promised to care for them, he protected them as they traveled. Verse 6, and Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him, and there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, or the God of the house of God, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother and Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died and she was buried under an oak below Bethel and he called its name Alon Bacchus. So here we see why this place was significant. Why go to Bethel? Why did Jacob have to go there to worship? Well, he had been there before. Back several decades ago when he had fled from Esau, when he knew that Esau wanted to kill him and he took off and ran, this is where God met with Jacob and revealed himself to him, and promised to bless him, and to care for him. Now, I don't know if anybody is keeping track at all. This is the third week we've talked about Jacob. If you are, you might have noticed that there have been a lot of times when God has reminded Jacob that he was going to care for him and bless him. Has anybody noticed that at all? Like, Does it seem like every other minute I'm saying, and God reminded Jacob, and I know you could be sitting there thinking, man, God sure reminded Jacob a lot about what he was going to do. It's too bad it took him so long to clue in. Does that remind you of anyone? How about ourselves? Every time we come together, every time we open God's word, we see his grace and his mercy in our lives. We are reminded that he has promised to care for us. And sometimes it takes us a long time to clue in. But Jacob had made a vow to God when he was at Bethel the first time. He said, Lord, if you'll take care of me, if you'll protect me and allow me someday to come back to this place, then I will make this your home and I will serve you. And Bethel became a center of worship for Jacob's family. So God did. He's back. He builds the altar. He worships and he fulfills his vow to God. Look at verse 9. God appeared to Jacob again when he had come from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob, but no longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Now, God had already given Isaac, or Jacob this new name. He had already given him the name Israel when he wrestled with him, but he reminds him of this new name. Now, where Jacob meant deceiver, manipulator, supplanter, 
Israel means, are you ready for this? Wrestles with God. That's what it means. God gave it to him during the wrestling match. Now, I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about this great name that persists to this day. God's people are still called Israel. And I was thinking, why didn't God give Jacob a name that meant something like listens to God or follows God closely or trusts God always? Why do you think? Wrestles with God. Nobody's brave. I think he gave him that name because it's a lot more realistic of Jacob's journey to get to this place where he was. Jacob didn't always listen to God. He didn't always follow God closely. He didn't always trust God. He wrestled with God. He wrestled with his place in God's plan. He wrestled with everything that God had promised And he wrestled with his own sinful desire to make things work for himself the way he wanted them to work. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Is that not the story of our lives as we walk with God, as we are given this new identity? We wrestle with it. We fight it too. As often as God reminds us that he is for us. Verse 13, then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him, and Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken to him, Bethel. So God met with Israel. It's not Jacob anymore. He meets with Israel, he he rescues him, he delivers him, he blesses him. And what does Israel do? He marks this moment with an act of worship. There was a deliberate, intentional response by Israel to God's grace and mercy in his life. I think that's very significant. And I think it's significant for us. Listen to this verse from the New Testament. Many of you will recognize it as I read it. Romans 12, 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Paul challenges us to the same thing that Jacob was challenged to. He says, God has rescued you. And you need to mark that moment. Now, how does Paul challenge us to mark the moment? The same way, with an act of worship. I'm begging you, Paul says, because of what God has done, to offer yourselves to him. Now, the last phrase of that verse, this is your spiritual worship. If you're like me and you read the King James for many years when you were younger maybe and memorized things, maybe even this verse in the King James, it says, this is your reasonable service. I'm not sure why so many uh, translations make it spiritual worship. 
But reasonable is actually a pretty good word to put there because what Paul is saying is this, look, it is only reasonable, it's only logical when you look at everything that God has done for you that you would respond to him by offering a sacrifice. That's where Jacob was. He looked back finally after all of the wrestling with God, finally looks back and he sees everything that God has done has led to this point. God has blessed him. God has cared for him. God has given him a family that is soon going to explode in size and number. And so it's logical to him that he worships. And the same must be true of us. Over in Romans chapter 6, Paul addresses this process in our lives that Jacob was starting to undertake. And I want to walk through it over the next few minutes with you. Romans chapter 6, verse 1 says this. Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? After we've received our new identity, after we've gotten our new name, should we persist in sin? Is that okay? Feel free to answer. After we have been given this new identity, God says, I love you. I'm sending my son to die for you. He pours out his blood for us. He cleanses our hearts. He gives us new life. Is it okay if we keep continuing in our sinful ways? Okay. Very good. I know, sometimes you're worried it's a trick question and you don't, want to look, you don't want to be the one guy that says no and the answer is yes, I get it. But no, that's what Paul says, absolutely not. Well, what about God's wonderful grace? What about all of the grace that God gives us? What about Lamentations that says his mercy is new every morning? Paul says absolutely not. It's shameful for us to keep sinning. There must be, with a new name, with a new identity, there must be a corresponding change in our lifestyle and in our behavior. And that is a process of faith and trust and surrender. And that's what was happening in Jacob's life. It was a, pro it was a long process, wasn't it? Decades process. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, I got my new name and my new identity a long time ago, but I'm still wrestling with the corresponding change in my lifestyle and behavior. Join the club. Sanctification is a process, but a process that must be undertaken nonetheless. Look at verse 3 of Romans 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Don't you remember, Paul says? Don't you remember the moment that you were saved? In that moment... Your sinful self was buried with Christ. Put in the tomb. It's dead. It's gone. 
and raised to new life. Remember that we talked about last week, remember we talked about the old ruts in our lives that lead us to the wrong places? We need to get out of those ruts and that's this process of sanctification. We identify with Christ now. That's why when we talk about baptism, that's why we do baptism the way that we do. We lower people into the water and we bring them up out of the water. The water isn't magical It doesn't wash our sins away. Christ's blood washes our sins away. But it's a symbol of what we've done. We're identifying with him. I'm burying that old way of life. And when I come out of the water, I want to walk in a new life, in a new way. Verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his... We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been, listen, set free from sin. Paul says we're united with Christ now. Just as you went down into the grave with Christ, you've come up out of the grave with this new life. Both things must happen. And our sin was brought to nothing, literally abolished. It's over. We were slaves to sin, but no longer. He says we are free. Let's keep reading. Verse 8. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Notice verse 11. So, so because of all of this, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So here's the hitch. Here's the problem. We know these things to be true. I would say that the vast majority of you here this morning probably know these things. You know, you know Christ died and that your old self died with him. You know that he, raised, he rose again and that he has new life and he gives us new life and you understand you're not a slave to sin anymore. You know you've been set free. You've read all the verses or you've heard us talk about them or both. But here's what happens. Paul says, so... Since you know it, you have to consider yourself dead to sin. You have to consider yourself. The word consider there is the word that we've mentioned before. It's logizomai. Logizomai. It comes, our word logic comes from it, but it literally means to reason it out. To come to the logical conclusion, you've got to remember what you know to be true. You have to understand it. And then you have to make a conscious decision to live a different way. Just like Israel did. Israel made a conscious decision to clean out his closets. He knew he needed to go to worship. He knew he was a new man, but he knew there was still stuff in the closet. Verse 12, Paul says this, 
Let not sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Don't allow it. That's what he says. Don't allow it. You're not a slave anymore. Verse 13. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of righteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Now, just if you can allow me one boring grammar moment. Okay? Those two verses, 12 and 13, all the verbs are in what we call the active voice. That's the opposite of the passive voice. Passive means, you, you, guys, has your wife ever said, why are you always so passive-aggressive? You know what that means, right? It means you don't say something you really want to say, but by your actions, you just kind of let it happen, right? No, I'm the only one that hears that. I am. I, 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 I am passive-aggressive sometimes. I don't mean to be, but it just comes very naturally to me. I don't have to work at it. But this is what Paul is saying. He's saying, don't be passive you can't be passive about this. God gives you a new name. He gives you a new identity. You have new life. Your old life is dead and buried. New life in Jesus Christ. He's never going to die again. He said there a couple of verses ago, he lives and he lives to God. We're united to him, so we should live to him. But notice what Paul says. Don't let it happen that sin reigns in you anymore. Don't present your bodies as instruments of righteousness. How often when we sin, you don't have to answer this one out loud. You can just answer it in your head. How often when we sin, do you look back and say, huh, how did that happen? I didn't mean for that. It just happened. I mean, that's been said billions of times on the face of this earth, my friends. It just happened. Paul says, that's not how it works. Don't present your body, actively present your body to sin. Actively present your body to God. This is not a passive thing, my friends. You choose, you decide. Sin is a conscious choice. It's a conscious decision every time. Sin does not just happen, we choose to sin. That it just happens is a lie from the pit of hell. It's a lie that Satan uses to lull us to sleep and say, there's nothing I can do. It just happens. That's a lie. You decide how you use your body. Verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Because of God's grace, sin has been forgiven. It has no dominion, no authority over you anymore. The only authority that sin or Satan has in your life is what you give him by your actions and by your decisions. So, God has given you a new name and a new identity. Are you living it out? That's the question. Does your lifestyle match your name? Do your choices honor God? Does your thought life line up with what you say you believe? These are the questions that we must ask ourselves. Are you like Jacob? 
Do your closets need to be cleaned out? Spiritually, are there areas that you need to trust God? I'm a Christian, I have a new name, I have a new identity, but, you know, this thing right here, I kind of hold close to the vest. Mentally, are there areas of your mind that need to be emptied? Need to be swabbed out? Or perhaps even literally, is there literally something that needs to go in the trash? There is a sanctification process. Paul reminds us that we must consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to Jesus Christ. You know, when I look at Jacob, it's been fun reading through these chapters the last few weeks. As I look at his life, something stands out to me. Jacob wasted a lot of his life. God blessed him. God used him. We're going to see as we look at Joseph that, that God kept his promises. But he wasted a lot of his life. How much time have you wasted? How much ever it is, it's enough. It's enough. It's time to get serious. It's time to be willing to make the sacrifice of ourselves to God. What choices do you have to make? That's the question you need to be asking yourself. Friends, God brings us to a decision point. We're going to mark this moment by singing this song of worship to him together. And I pray that you will examine your heart Look in your closets. What choices do you need to make? Let's stand and, and sing this as an act of worship together this morning. Father, as an act of worship this morning, we offer ourselves to you. You have buried our sin with you in the grave. As we have raised to life with you, you have given us a newness, a hope, strength, grace, so that we don't have to be slaves to sin anymore. Father, would you, would you help us each day, each moment of each day, to live in light of that, to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to you. This is a choice we make. I pray that you will help each one of us as individuals to, to honestly evaluate ourselves before you and to determine if there's anything that needs to be thrown out so that we might wholly live in the light of what you have given us. Thank you, Father, for your grace and mercy. Thank you for your patience to us, just like your patience with Jacob. We just ask that you would be glorified in and through us in this place as we gather and worship and as we go out into this community as well. In Christ's name. Thanks for coming today, folks. Hope you can join us tonight at 6 for our prayer time. Have a great